This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. No No Boy is a project of Dr. Julian Saperiti. As part of getting his PhD in ethnomusicology and American studies from Brown University, he created music as part of his dissertation. His previous two albums, called 1942 and 1975, explore Asian American history, such as World War II Japanese internment camps and detention centers, his mother's Vietnamese family history, and his own racial identity. Through the albums, he weaves in historical recordings of voices, sounds, and places. Soft language barrier, the child of an immigrant. Saperiti has since been granted a PhD and is now out with a new album filled with more Asian American history. It's inspired by a trip he took to a Buddhist monastery after feeling narrow minded through his experience in academia. I recently caught up with Saperiti, and before we talked about his latest project, he shared a little bit of his musical history and how No No Boy has evolved. I was a musician from birth, really. I was born in Nashville because my dad took a job in the record industry, so that's why I was born there. And, um, you know, grew up around all these uh, country music stars and and session musicians, so it was always just kind of in the water. It's kind of cliche to say about Nashville, but it's really true if you're in proximity to all that stuff. So always had been a musician, went to music college, and then toured around, and then I decided to go to grad school. And, and just totally retired from being a touring musician, kind of had enough of it by age 26, 27. So fell backwards into academia, picked up a bunch of degrees, the last of which was a PhD, and I was studying Asian American history and musical culture and stuff like that. And when they explained to me along the way what I'd have to do for my PhD, like this dissertation thing that people have to do, it's like a, some 300-page paper you got to write that's just crazy laborious and overly cited and jargony. I thought, man, that doesn't sound that fun. And also, I already spent you know a good portion of my adult life honing this method of communicating with people through song and producing and sound. And why don't I why don't I take a shot at turning some of these histories I'm I'm studying. Uh, very little-known histories, American histories, that I'd like to share with more people. How about instead of the peer-reviewed academic journal thing, let, let's sing some of these and see what happens. And and so I ended up being able to hand in my last album, 1975, like the vinyl record of it for Chapter 3 of my dissertation. And they um, they checked the boxes. I got a Ph.D. now. So oh, congratulations. Most, most useless doctor you'll ever meet. <laughs> So, I mean, in in your liner notes um, for this album, again, this album is called Empire Electric, and you say, I won't go near the brutalizing job market or hoop-jumping tenure process, (laughs) nor publish in the gatekeepery, jargon-filled journals of my fields. Why would I, when I can share my research through music with so many more people? Would you read my dissertation? No, but you're listening to it. I really love that. Um, I'm pretty familiar with uh, the academia process Mm -hmm. and and. Mm -hmm. As like someone who grew up in journalism, it's like, man, there's so many other ways that we can get the message across to more people. So I appreciate that. But I'm curious. So this album, was this also part of your dissertation? Or is this album also kind of you stepping away from academia? Uh, No, I think the big difference between Empire Electric, this new record, and the previous two, 1942 and 1975, is that this is not sort of fettered by academia. It's not having to be in the slightest way approved by any colleagues or advisors or anything like that. So I definitely was able to let loose and kind of go back to that musician who 
I had left behind entering grad school. And sonically, it's it's a lot sparser lyrically. You still have a few tunes that take that classic billion verse folk song format, but many of my favorite moments on this record are are instrumental. They're the juxtaposition of sampling uh, traditional Asian instruments with what we think of as traditional American instruments. So like juxtaposing a banjo against a pedal steel and understanding that without imperialism, slavery, colonialism, the banjo, an African instrument, and the pedal steel coming from the lap steel, a Pacific uh, Hawaiian instrument. Three flights from Minzerow So he could catch twine at the rhyme show Then Grammy put him for a basement slow night To open up the bill Trying to do a lot of work that I would normally do as an academic without saying anything, by sort of putting instruments together, by sampling different instruments, by getting at the idea of some of these complicated stories, my own biography of being a Vietnamese-American growing up in the American South, by sampling pieces of American artillery fire from the war back in my mom's country, but juxtaposing that against these beautiful sounds from nature reserves in Vietnam and, and making sure we don't flatten these stories of refugees or incarcerees or all these different kind of folks. So it's still a very rich academic text, but ideally, I guess you don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the point. I mean, what I like, it, what I find interesting about your music is you'll things will be weaved in through the music that could be like anthropological recordings or like field notes along with, you know, sounds from the field are in there. And one of them is Mekong Baby. Can you talk about what we're hearing in that track? Yeah, Mekong Baby is one of my favorite tunes. And I've gotten into this practice of sampling the sounds around me, so a lot of the ambient sounds, so rushing water from the creek or uh, bird sounds, of course. And on this little sampler I have, it's called the OP-1. It almost looks like a toy, but it's way, way overpriced. You can, like, sort of put a bird sample in there and then pitch it across four octaves on the keyboard. So then you can kind of turn it into flutes if you, like, cut it up and get these interesting rhythms that are not you know, so beholden to time signature because they're just birds and they don't care about our time signatures. And so that was the basis for Mekong Baby. It was the natural environment of walking through the forest. And I think sitting by water, I just started singing this melody, which I also recorded into this little sampler, which has a little kind of digital tape machine on it. I was like, sail away, Mekong Baby. And I would take those parts of my voice and I would pitch them up and down as well. So you have these interesting, basically it's just bird sounds, water, and then some percussion from footsteps and and the trees that make up 70% of that track. And then when I got home to the studio, I had the hook and everything, and I just wrote this sparse lyric thinking about my mother and my aunt and their mother, these incredible women who survived this American war in Southeast Asia when they were growing up in Saigon, and thinking about having to never go home again, which is something I hope none of your listeners can relate to, which I can't relate to. Thinking about, you know, like if 
Imagine if being from Nashville, they just changed the name to like Donald Trump City. <laughs> That's what you know being from Saigon is. It's called Ho Chi Minh City. It's named after a person that most of those South Vietnamese people don't like very well. And it's a very difficult experience. So I wanted to incorporate the difficulty and the kind of oddness of the historical moment they were born in and having to leave home and living through war. So I put some of that American archival sounds of military gunfire and bombs going off as sort of another layer of percussion that you can hear in the song. And then I put some field recordings that I had found or I had recorded at national parks in Vietnam. And then over that, I thought it'd be really lovely to have kind of a stand-in for those ladies, for my mom and my aunt and my grandma. So I, I, I got this um, Vietnamese-American pop singer uh, who really just crushed it back in the 80s named Tai Hien. I gave her a Vietnamese translation of the lyric I had written. We kind of do this like very broken, jagged duet. It doesn't really sync up 100%. They're in different languages. I kind of chopped both our voices up and, and moved them around a little bit in the track. You know, you asked about whether this is still an academic project. It's not. Um, it's no longer beholden to, like I said earlier, my advisors or um, any colleagues or peer review. But I think it does deeper work specifically because it's not beholden to any of that. It's just, it's just seeing what I can do sonically. So a lot of the techniques and theories that I came across while I was a humanities grad student have like found their way into my production. You know, whether that's sort of like the fra thinking about the fragmentation of a life like my mother's, this, this refugee, this diasporic existence. And I think that's reflected in, in the song. But, but ideally, you know, you just hear it as like a good pop song. Your song, 1603, is about how two centuries before Lewis and Clark, Asian folks had discovered Oregon. Tell me more of the history you're sharing in this song. So this history is indebted to my good friend Diego Luis, who has a forthcoming book called The First Asians in the Americas. Diego and I bonded because we're both from Nashville. He's seven years younger than me, but we're both from Nashville, went to the same grammar school and high school, and then we both were getting our PhDs at Brown, and that's where we met. So it was like kismet. And he's also half Asian. He's Afro-Chinese-Cuban. So we both have a weird experience coming from a very... Mm, conservative, interesting place being very different looking. And so we bonded over this. He's been one of the main researchers and photographers for the Nono Boy Project. And he texted me maybe a year ago now. He's, he said, I'm, I'm in the archive in Seville, in, in Sevilla, Spain. 
And I just had to let you know, I just found the crew list of the first voyage that ever discovered Oregon in 1603, you know, non-native discovery of Oregon. And there's seven Asian dudes on this, um, on this boat. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's amazing. You know, people from India, people from the Philippines, which was very typical of the 16th and 17th Spanish galleon trade. And that's what his research is all about, like pushing back our understanding of Asian America from those Chinese who come over to mine in the mid-1800s back to the 1500s, 1600s, you know, slaves and indentured servants and sailors being brought over on these Spanish ships to bring Chinese goods to Mexico and then back to Spain starts to populate, you know, the first Asian American, as we might think of it now, enclaves in, in, the, in the Americas. And so the, I, I really wanted to write this song, 1603, because Diego and I took a road trip. Uh, we do these like historical pilgrimages because we're nerds. Mm -hmm. And we took a road trip to the site where this ship uh, in 1603, captained by Vizcaino, uh, was drifting for like a week in the snow in a bad southern Oregon winter, just looking at the southern Oregon coast, swearing to God that they found the Northwest Passage. And uh, it actually just turned out to be the Rogue River from what we can tell uh, driving around and on the maps. But... We went down there and I just kind of sat on the beach thinking about these dudes who were taken all the way from India or all the way from Manila and brought to Acapulco over a five-month journey and then over six or seven months up to the southern coast of Oregon, the northernmost expedition at that point. And it was just mind-boggling because I think about living in a place like Oregon and the iconography is so white. Mm -hmm. And it's so like pristine in a colonial kind of way, right? Where my my wife goes to Lewis and Clark Law School, right? Yeah. And um, we think about the Oregon Trail, which is the, sort of the capstone on Manifest Destiny. And I was really interested in the fact that maybe the first person, who knows, but the first person on that ship could have been a very brown-skinned person, you know, like me in the summer, could have been a Filipino or an Indian guy, and. What that means to push that very pioneer, very white iconography towards um, a more diverse history. And also, it's just, it's just a wild story. Like, the, if you look at the maps from back then, they got no clue where anything is. They're just <laughs> starting to etch things out. And these are like religious fanatics, you know, besides gold and, and silk. Like, the biggest impetus for these travels were... Um, conversion, like in a really horrible Catholic way, um, where they'd slaughter Indians after like reading them um, God's will and stuff and on board these ships. It's just so, such a crazy story. So, you know, I tried to go through the captain's log and I sat down on the beach where I would have been looking out at that ship that first saw Oregon. And I wanted to put at the end of the album because I think that's where Asian American history needs to begin. Uh, like where Diego's book is, is taking us hundreds of years before where we start again with those East Asians, like the Chinese who come over. We need to start thinking about, man, these people have been here for a long time. And places like Oregon, they're not so homogenous. And, and that's an interesting story to tell. But also it seems like this journey in that first voyage sounded brutal. Like in the lyrics you're talking about, you know, they were too weakened to make land. You know, they, they never touched uh, the sand. The wind so rose, the lap oil froze. We never touched the sand. 
Were they just seeing it from afar? They never actually got to get out of the boat and like touch ground in Oregon? Around New Year's, just after New Year's in 1603, like they had left in May of 1602 from Acapulco. And this is like early stuff, right? They named Santa Barbara in mm. California on this voyage. This is how early we're talking. Santa Barbara and they get up past Drake's Bay in Northern California around New Year's. And by the time they get to the southern coast of Oregon, just north of Brookings, there's only six people that can stand up. So they don't have enough people to even take a, a small boat to make land. And, and also, it's, it's, it's a, a sort of rarely cold winter from the archive, as we can tell, because uh, there's snow on the peaks. And, you know, although it gets cold, it's usually that misty 40-degree kind of winter that we get. And, but it's, like, snowy. And if you ever travel down there, it's like these crazy rock formations. So it's in incredibly dangerous to try to, to, to land on that particular part of the coast. So it's just this, uh, I, in the song, I call it a floating ghost. Um, and I'm not sure whether I came up with that or I, I, I cribbed that from the captain's log. But you just imagine all these dead and dying sailors. The floating ghost, the bolded coast, too weak and too make land. Did they all die on the ship? No, they get back home. I mean, wow. the death rates are like sometimes half on yeah. these ships. So it is just, again, unimaginable history. But yeah, people do make it back. Those Asian sailors make it back. Many of the crew members die. But this is just a sick and dying ghost ship, basically. That's like, that's the discovery of Oregon. Wow. And uh, yeah, and this is so early. Again, this is 200 years before Lewis and Clark, you know, and uh it's just cool to know your history because I think it opens up pathways. And, and also it, for, for someone like me and Diego, it opens up a, a little sense of belonging. Or at least it counteracts a sense that we don't belong, I suppose. You yeah. know, when, when you live in a place like Oregon and you love going outdoors, it's incredibly beautiful but, again, pristine white space. You think about those sailors, you know, just roughing it and folks that looked like you on that ship. Or, or another song in the album, this woman, Mio Iwakoshi, who was a first Japanese settler in Oregon in 1880, came over with a Scottish husband. They called her the Western Empress. She was working at a sawmill. She opened up a sawmill just um, east of Portland. And then that woman that you were telling in that song you were just referencing, isn't it that like she didn't get a proper headstone next to her husband? She got like a tree instead? Yeah, it's... It's wild, right? Because, again, the whiteness, like Oregon was started constitutionally as a whites-only state. So right. when Mio Iwakoshi dies, her husband, Andrew, the Scotsman, had been uh, buried long before her in the Gresham Pioneer Cemetery just outside Portland. And she is not allowed to have a headstone because she can't be buried there. So, so I guess maybe she's secretly buried and they put a Japanese cedar tree, like a sapling, where she's buried and now it's huge. Now it's like 80 feet, 100 feet tall. Wow. And they finally did put a headstone there that says first Japanese American settler in Oregon, which is great. But um, again, you know, it just makes you reconsider how long people have been here and how diverse those populations have been and how important that is to know. Japanese, see 
tell me about the monastery and trip you took that also inspired this record. I'd say the the heart of the album is um, is uh, you asked about leaving academia. Mm-hmm. Part of that is is my mindfulness, my Buddhist practice. The first thing my wife Amelia and I did when we left Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, where she had done her studies as well. I wasn't even done with my PhD. I just wanted to get off campus. And we went to this monastery called Blue Cliff in upstate New York. And Blue Cliff was founded by this guy, Thich Nhat Hanh. And my thinking had gotten really narrow. I had become really narrow-minded. Like, I'd become pretty smart because you have to to do a PhD, I guess. And I'd learned a lot of stuff. But, like, politically, I had become deeply narrow-minded. I think I was confusing, like, capital A activism for, for actual action. That's kind of where I was leaving Brown University. And I had this very narrow view of the world, both politically and also professionally, because they kind of trick you when you go to do something as arduous as a PhD. Uh, They kind of trick you into thinking that's all there is in the world. You've, Mm -hmm. You've already committed this many years of your life. So, boy, you better not get off the path. You know, you better get that postdoc position. You better publish as many articles that no one will read as possible. <laughs> you better try to get that uh, visiting professorship. And then maybe seven, eight years into the process, you'll get an actual tenured track job. You know, it's just like you can't get off the carousel or so you think. So I go to this monastery with all that in my head, and it just helped empty me out. I remember sitting in like this was like a five six day thing and we we camped out in the field outside where the monks live and outside the um the dharma hall that's what they call it, like the meditation center and we'd wake up at five o'clock in the morning and we'd go do silent meditation then we'd do some yoga we'd eat some breakfast we'd do our chores and then we could start talking around 10 o'clock when they rang the bell and it was like really difficult, like just getting up that early for one, but also just like not talking right away, not checking your phone, all this kind of stuff that was just so different from my lifestyle. And through their teachings, I suppose, of the week, and then just through the checking in with myself and the meditation, things kind of started to uncalcify all these very professional or political views that I, I thought I had to die upon started to melt away. And I remember specifically, we were in the the Dharma Hall one of the last days, and the monks kind of opened it up to all of us on this retreat for a Q&A. So a Q&A with the monks. And um, this, this young person, probably about 20, 21 years old, college student, um, very similar to the kind of very angry protests, uh, heavy undergrads that I was around at Brown, just stood up and started yelling, mm. <laughs> like at a monk, just like this oh. like, crazy person to yell at. This person in their brown robe sitting there smiling at them. They were yelling, and I understood it because I remember being 20 years old and the world seeming like it was ending. Like when I was 20, it was like the Iraq War. I was like the Ralph Nader campaign coordinator at my school. Like I was just as, as lefty as you could be and as angry as you could be. So I understood it. I felt for this kid a lot, and this kid was saying, specifically like about climate change, like, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, Like as if the monk knows, first of all. But the monk had this profound answer, right? Like to all of this kind of really violent speech that they were encountering, the monk said, well, we have to remember there are multiple truths, right? So when you you see the sunset, that that is true. Our, our our night begins when the sun sets. Our, our days revolve around the sun rising and sun setting. But there's also another truth that the sun doesn't actually set. Now we could get into like a flaming lips quote here, but 
he said there are multiple truths. And with climate change, it is true that we are destroying our world and sort of emphasize the our world, like the sort of people-centric version of the world. Like we are creating an inhospitable place for us to live and many other animals. But then he said, but the world, if you really care about just the world in general, we will be gone and the world will be okay. The universe will be okay. The energy will still be there. And that, if anything, sort of helped me get to this middle path, which is the whole point of Buddhism, helped me try to understand that there are multiple truths to every subject or situation I might find myself in. And then also it made me want to be more of an environmentalist, not for the sake of myself, but just because it's something good to do, to be more in harmony with the environment and the world around you. And so that trip really just, I don't know if it like uh, course corrected or it shook some stuff into me or out of me that was good. But as soon as we left, I wrote this song, Little Monk, which is really the centerpiece of the album. And, you know, the previous work, we're talking about, you know, these stories of boat people, like Southeast Asian refugees that are like, like dying out in the South China Sea trying to escape the Vietnam government after the war. We're talking about Japanese internment camps. We're talking about Chinese massacres. Some really heavy stuff that this project dives into. But a lot of the music, and especially Little Monk, is, is quite joyful. It's still trying to hold multiple truths at once. It's still trying in the lyrics to say, I don't have all the answers, and these questions are a lot bigger than myself. But why subject myself constantly to the abstract suffering of all when I can maybe start my day with a little silence and meditation and check in with myself and then maybe do good one footstep at a time? So it's kind of a big big sellout sign for the 20-year-old Ralph Nader campaign coordinator <laughs> in me. But it's the only feasible way to go forward, both as a scholar and a musician, to try to prioritize joy and, you know, real things like empathy and restorative justice, as opposed to just cathartic yelling and protest with no political action behind it. And so that's what the monastery did for me. And that's what's at the heart of this album. And um, yeah, it's it's a big shift. And I think that's also because I am no longer in academia as well, that I can, I can think more freely, to be honest with you. So it's the end of the world. Once again, what is it this week? Protest over this, riots over that. Do you remember at the monastery when the outraged child smile back Oh how and when do I get so zen What do you think are the big takeaways you learned about history through your PhD in academic studies that you have been able to tell through music and what are some of those histories and big takeaways that you've had that you haven't been able to share with your music yet? I, I mean, you know, Emily I am just over the moon at the response to this project. Because, like I said, I retired from music, just full stop. I didn't want to do it anymore. I'd gotten to travel all over the world, put out vinyl records. My entire bucket list from when I was 15 was checked off by the time I was 27. So I felt great. And it had just become monotonous. And uh, I realized I was just like kind of a dumb child because I'd been doing the same thing I'd been doing since I was 19 to 27. So with that said, this was just supposed to be a school project. 
honestly. If anything, it was supposed to be something I could show my students when I taught classes, like as a model. How do you how do you do all this archival research? How do you conduct oral histories or do field work, but then actually do something with it? How do you not just leave it for a paper um, that no one will ever read? And and that was successful. But the fact that you know I've been able to talk to y'all in KEXP and all these other places and. Every time someone hears one of these songs, to me, it's like just this little secret history lesson that is above and beyond anything I think myself or any academic could imagine for their work. And uh, that's great. So I feel like anything anyone takes away from it is uh, incredible to me. Ultimately, this project was for my 12-year-old self, kind of facing some of that kind of Southern boyhood BS, racialized, like, light violence that I that I went through when I was a kid, wanted to really distance myself from the way I looked and the culture I came from being attached to that. So a lot of the things that I still feel I have left to say, nothing really historically. I've been able to tell some awesome stories, stories that I'm really proud of, both personally and professionally. But there's a few things I kind of just want to leave this project saying that are more on the the family's personal side of things and like some specific very difficult stories that I'd like to cap this off with and and so that's the only thing that's really yet to come because at this point I I'm I'm quite middle path these days I'm much more about sound and joy and those kinds of things as a musician but to finish this project off I think the last thing to say is you know I'm all right and and that's specifically because I I dug through all this history and I was able to find all these ghosts and musical ancestors in particular, people who kind of looked like me, who were also creators and musicians, and find those hidden histories and bring them to light. And then by way of that, having a doorway back into this very bloody Vietnamese family history that I come from, that my family escaped. I think that's the last thing left on the table. That was my conversation with Julian Saperiti of No No Boy. His latest album, Empire Electric, was released on September 29th. He'll be playing an intimate show at the Rabbit Box at Seattle's Pike Place Market on Saturday, November 18th. Here's his song, Jakarta. Oh, 
with Sound and Vision. And before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and review it. Those little things go a long way in spreading the word that this podcast exists and is out there in this very algorithm-focused world we live in. Let's do it with humans. Let's spread the word. Share a podcast with a friend, an episode that you really loved. And by the way, KEXP is a publicly funded station. The majority of our funding comes from listeners. It's a really beautiful model. It gives us a lot of freedom to do what we do without having to worry about big corporations or making sure that whatever we do is generating money. You decide what you like and you support it with your dollars. KEXP's fall fund drive is happening in about a week or so. And so to get ahead of that, I would love for you to help support this show. Just think of one $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. There's going to be a link in the description in this podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening.